0: So, I want to talk to you today about something I think could be very important to everybody in the room. Uh, The book of Luke, which is uh, the longest and most detailed of the four Gospels. I'll give you a little background as to why it's the longest and most detailed. Um, Luke is the only Gospel writer who did not personally walk with Jesus. He's a researcher, a historian, and he had studied with a lot of different people who walked with Jesus and written down the stories that he heard from them. And the interesting thing about this history he's writing is that he's writing it for a person that he is currently sharing the gospel with. So here's what I want you to think about. So like, imagine that you're a Christian and you want your good friend, your neighbor, your, you know, your buddy, what do you want them to be a Christian. And so you go to certain lengths to try and help them understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus wants to do in their life. And, and Luke wrote the book of Luke and the, the book called the, uh, the, the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. He wrote those two books to his friend Theophilus with the intention of trying to share the gospel with Theophilus and help him walk with and follow Jesus. That was kind of the point in the background. And the reason we think that Luke has so many more details is first of all, Luke, Luke is a Gentile, not a Jew, So all of this Jewish history and all of this Jewish background to Luke was new and different. He was learning it himself as he was writing about it. And so he includes things that some Jewish writers might have assumed everybody knows because he did not know any of those things, trying to convey them. For instance, imagine this. Imagine your grandmother was a phenomenal cook, and she makes the best biscuits on the planet. And when you say, hey, granny, how do you make your biscuits? She says you take some flour and you mix it with some eggs and you stir it together and you put it on a plate and you cook it at 350 degrees and then it's done. But then you do exactly what she just said and it doesn't come out the same way because there are 12 steps that she thinks you are assuming to know that she didn't tell you And she didn't know, you don't know those steps, you're not granny, right? And so what you want from her is like a detailed, specific time. I want to know if the eggs go in before the salt, or does the salt go in after the flower? Like every little detail. That's what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to give us extreme detail because of the fact that he himself has recently learned all of it. And he's wanting to make sure he conveys it wisely and correctly. So when it comes to the beginning of the book of Luke, he leads off with the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, whose mother's name was Elizabeth. Okay, And then he tells us about the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, whose mother's name was Mary. And then he tells us how these two ladies, who are family members, they are cousins, he tells us how the two of them end up together as Elizabeth, who is a little further along than Mary, how how Mary comes to see Elizabeth just before both of them have children, give birth. Now, this is a very interesting story because in Jewish literature, typically, they would not have started off their book with a story about two women. Typically, there would have been stories about men and the women who were with them. But in this story, we lead off with this very interesting tale, and Luke specifically talks directly about Elizabeth and Mary. That's who he talks about. Uh, That's Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. He's also, uh, for his time, very much interested in bringing uh, a sense of cultural equality between men and women. And so it's very important for him as he brings those to us. I want to read to you today the story of Mary coming to see Elizabeth and what Elizabeth says about it. And then I want to read to you something that's called the Magnificat, which is this song or poem that Mary sings or or says back to Elizabeth about this whole experience. Now, before I read it to you, I'm kind of giving my hand away. I'm showing you my hand a little bit early. I want you to understand a few things that, that, that Luke is making very clear to us. First, it's amazing what God can do with the obedience of an individual. It's amazing what God can do with the, in, the, in, the, the, the obedience of one person. Because we're not talking about entire villages here. We're not talking about large churches. We're not talking about big organizations with great budgets. We're talking about what two different individual women and their obedience and how God used their obedience as individuals to do pretty amazing things. The second thing I want you to get is that when God typically uses the obedience of an individual to do great things, it has a tendency of costing that individual a lot. There's a sense of great sacrifice made on the part of the individual to be able to be in a place where they've been obedient and God is using their obedience. And in a world, this is kind of my showing the hand a little bit, in a world where we have a tendency to ask, what has God done for me lately? In this story, we see two women who is saying, what can I do to sacrifice for the good of what God is doing in the world? Make sense? And in the midst of God calling both of these women into great sacrifice, both of them, make strong statements about how blessed they feel. You see, culturally for us, when we use the hashtag blessed, it's usually because we just got a new car. You know, or we just went on vacation and our feet have been in the salt water of the ocean. You know, when we say hashtag blessed, we normally are talking about the fact that something really great just happened to us. But in this story, what you're going to find is two ladies who are both putting themselves through obedience to God into a place where sacrifice is being required, and both of them are literally celebrating how blessed they feel. I want you to think about that. In the book of Luke chapter 1, if you are going along, we're doing something a little different this week, I would like to tell you that this was by design and intentional, that I did not put slides on the screen for you to read, but I have lost my laptop. Because as I get older, I'm a little bit, like, I don't know what happens. I just, anybody else lose your keys or whatever? I literally have devices on my wallet and my keys so that my phone can find them. So as long as I don't also lose my phone, I can usually find things. This laptop is in my house somewhere. I just don't know where it is in the house. I think my family is messing with me is what I really think is going on. But Here it goes. Um, in the beginning of the text, the birth of, uh, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold through Elizabeth. Then the birth of Jesus is foretold through Mary. And then in verse 39 of chapter 1 of the book of Luke, we're told about this great visit. Now, the Scripture actually only talks about Mary making the journey and making the visit. The odds of her actually going on this 100-mile trip by herself are probably pretty low. So most likely she was a part of a caravan or a group. Maybe her husband was with her. Uh, but we don't know that. We just know that she made the journey from where she lived in, 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 in the Nazareth area all the way down to the southern part where where her cousin Elizabeth lives. In those days, this is verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste. That doesn't just mean speed, it also means with excitement, with anticipation. She was excited about it. She went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Zachariah's her husband. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, this is a cool story, the baby, which was growing in Elizabeth, the baby leaped in her womb or leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now she's talking to to Mary about baby Jesus. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth is so honored that Mary has been willing to come and see her. For behold, verse 44, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So can you see Elizabeth's excitement about getting to be around Mary? And at the same time, Elizabeth herself is carrying John the Baptist. Like this is is all such an exciting thing for the two of them. What I'm about to read to you is the Magnificat. It's one of the most famous sections of Scripture, Mary's story, Mary's song. I think it's just beautiful. And, but you have to put yourself in her shoes. She's younger than most brides. She is now married to her husband, but when she became pregnant, it was, a, it was a, a, an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit did, so it did, involve, it did not involve her husband. Um, and she has been promised that the one born to her, would be the Son of God. Okay, that's what she's dealing with. That's a little pressure. I would like that's that's a lot that's a lot of pressure in the midst of all that's going on here. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked On the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I'm not done yet. I just want to talk to you about that for a little bit. Mary is celebrating that God has brought her into a place of great sacrifice. Mary is celebrating that God has given her an opportunity to do something that will be involved in His plan to bless the world, and yet it's going to cost her a great deal. The Bible only tells us some things about how Mary was treated, but but history tells us a lot about the fact that for many... When Mary first found out that she was pregnant, many people maligned her, talked down about her. You can imagine, right? Even in our culture, when a young lady not yet expecting to be a mom becomes a mom, there are people who are quite harsh about that, okay? Imagine, though, a culture that is much more conservative in areas of sexuality and and babies and all that stuff. Imagine a culture that's much more conservative than our culture and how they would relate to or react to a young lady going through the birthing, pro- you know, the, the, the development and ultimately birthing process, especially when that young woman says, It's of God. The Holy Spirit did this to me. Imagine the ridicule that most likely she received from so many people. And in the midst of all of that, she has this attitude of, I have been blessed by God. I love this. I love that she starts out by thinking about the modesty of her own situation. She's like, I don't have a clue why he picked me. I have no idea why why, like, why me. He looked down and what he saw in my world, she just calls humble estate. Like, like she, he looked down and saw me in my humble estate. Who, who am I? And then she remarks about what he has done for her and for his own glory. A real secret to the Christian life is to come to the place where you can face whatever it is you're facing and recognize that God is in your favor That he has come to you despite of who you are and, and your mistakes and your background and your humble estate. And that ultimately his behavior, his actions, what he's doing is for your blessing and for his glory. When you get to a place where you recognize everything that ever happens to you from here, you know that no matter what this feels like momentarily, no matter what I'm experiencing in the short term, God is allowing this or potentially doing this for my benefit and for His glory. Man, it makes it to where you can go through things that might seem impossible to go through otherwise. In verse 50, it says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, We've talked a little bit in the past, but the the idea of fear here is, first of all, it is a respectful fear. Some, Some kind of want to put that off and go, well, fear doesn't mean fear. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It means, okay, wait, he is God. I am not God. He is creator. I am not creator. He is in charge. I am not in charge. So there's a sense in which, of course, I respect and fear him. But that's not just a terrifying kind of fear, although I don't want you to completely put being terrified of God out of your mind. I want you to understand also in the midst of that, He is good and trustworthy and for me and for you. And so in the process of this, not only do I recognize His greatness and my humble estate, but I recognize that His greatness is aimed at me and you in a way that is graceful and merciful and good. I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite movie quotes uh, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the kids are first getting to interact with Aslan, the lion, who is the... I don't want to give away if you haven't seen the movie. You, you should have seen it by now. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a great movie, great book, even, even better. Uh, but there's a moment in which the, the young kids are talking to an animal, he's talking back to them, and they're talking about this lion, and they say, is he safe? That's the question, is he safe? And I, this is not going to be an exact quote, but basically I think it's a little beaver, says, of course he's not safe, he's a lion, but He's good. He's good, intended to teach us this exact truth, that that God is one to be feared with the respect of knowing that he is creator and I am not, and he is God and I am not, and he is perfect and I am not. And at the same time, he is good, and he is for those who respect him and follow him and respond to him. And his mercy, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, I don't want to put any, uh, in my imagination, I don't want to put any sin in Mary's attitude here. That's not what I'm saying. But you know that she's been interacting with the proud. You know that she's been interacting with those who've put her down and had negative things to say about her and have you know, ridiculed her in different things. And in the midst of her mind, she recognizes he has shown his strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's the second time she uses that term, humble estate. Once was about herself, now she's talking about others who may feel the same way. So my question is... humble estate. I want to I say, do you feel like you're coming from a humble estate? I think that question can, can have multiple uh, innuendos there. Let, let's talk about one. Uh, humble estate from, from the sense of maybe depressed, anxious, broken, maybe even failed. Like, like, do you feel like you're coming from a place of, oh my gosh, my life's a mess? Okay. The encouragement to you is the Lord can take that which is coming from humble estate and do great things. Okay, maybe this. Maybe you wouldn't necessarily identify with words like broken, failed, or whatever. Uh, then the question would be, wait a second, time out. We don't want to come from a proud estate. You know, like, I don't want to walk to the Lord and go, look what I did for you. You know, that, uh, look how great I've been, God. Uh, and so in those senses, there's actually an intent to say we should humble ourselves and make sure that we recognize that our goodness, the New Testament says our goodness is as filthy rags to his goodness, that that we don't need to allow ourselves to think that we are too proud or to be too proud. Uh, And so whether you feel like the society and the world and life and choices have beaten you into a humble estate, or whether you are someone who might choose to recognize, man, I need to be humble in the way I think about my walk with God. Either way, he takes those who are humble and he does great things in their life and with them. It says in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Man, there's a lot of truth. I mean, it's truth, but there's a lot of truths that we need to think about there. I can't tell you the number of times someone has been in the midst of something wonderful and then walk away and say to me something like, I just didn't get anything out of it. In most cases, you didn't get anything out of it because you didn't come hungry. You didn't come desiring anything. You didn't come looking. Uh, More or less, a lot of times our attitude is we show up at something God's going to do as if, like, you know what? We pretty much like where we are right now. I don't know that I want anything different or new. God's going to have to really impress me for me to want something more. And he says, you know, in those situations, he sends those people away hungry they weren't hungry when they came to him, and being hungry is better than not being hungry, so it's still an improvement to go from, I wasn't hungry, but now I'm hungry. Okay, great, the next time he comes to you, maybe you'll come hungry, because when you come hungry, that's when he fills you with great things, is what he says. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months. By the way, uh, she was about six months pregnant when she came. So we don't know if Mary remained until the baby was born, until right before the baby was born. But it's interesting, the scripture says she remained three more months uh, before she left. So uh, in my mind, most likely Mary stays, the baby is born, and then Mary goes home. That's, That's most likely what has happened here. Listen. I didn't bring a 45 minute message today with, you know, 11 different things to learn. Uh, I brought a shorter one with, I think, some very poignant things to learn. I said them at the beginning, I'll say them again now. It's amazing what God can do with the obedience of one person. I love this. I love that Mary didn't go, hey, angel, you want me to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Uh, Let me call 10 of my friends and see what they think I should do. Like she didn't. She just, She says, yes, you know, I mean, how many others have you asked first and were they willing to do it? Like, you know, I wonder if anybody else has been willing to take this kind of sacrifice or do this kind of hard thing. No, she just, she does what the Lord asks her to do. She's humble. I can't imagine. I mean, I really can't put myself as, as a guy, especially, I can't put myself in the place where I have to think through what is Mary really giving up here? What is she sacrificing? What is she willing to put into this move of obedience? Which is, I'm going to disappoint a lot of people. I'm going, to, I'm going to have a lot of people call me bad names and think bad of me. At the time that she first hears of her impending pregnancy, she did not know if Joseph, the man she was supposed to marry, would keep her around. You know, All of those things, she makes those decisions to be obedient to the Lord And then God works out those other things for her in the midst of those steps that she takes forward. God can do amazing things through the obedience of one person. Let me make this more personal. God can do amazing things through your personal obedience. So what is it that God is asking you to do? Or maybe you're thinking, I don't know. That's, I think that's fair. So the next step would be, okay, how receptive have you been to God asking you to do something? <laughs> you know, So that, that hungry, thirsty, filled thing. So that might be, okay, Lord, I have no idea what being obedient to you right now looks like. I don't know what you're wanting me to do. I don't know what you're directing me to do. I'm not sure, but I'm going to be open to hearing that. I want to be open to hearing that. And then you you try to find a place of openness. It's why we read the scriptures daily as a church. It's why we worship together weekly as a church. It's why we get in Bible study. Because one of those things is that we're wanting to open the receptors of our ears to the words of the voice of God. How can we hear Him? God can do amazing things through the obedience of one person. Secondly, it will cost you. I'm fairly confident it will cost you. Uh, to be obedient to the Lord, to find yourself in the greatest place of his blessing and his protection will cost you something like the giving up of your own control, the giving up of your own ability to oversee your own protection, the giving up of your own ability to say no when you want to say no and yes when you want to say yes, it, it will cost you. One of the things that gets talked about a lot uh, in Christianity in America is how many pastors are quitting. Have you heard, I don't know if you've heard about this? It's a lot. It's a lot. Lots and lots of churches can't find pastors. Here's one of the reasons. I don't know what all those reasons are, but one of them is this. You're 19 years old, you go off to college to study to be a pastor, and you're hanging around other 19-year-old pastors, and a lot of them talk like this. My grandma says, I'm going to be great at this. Everybody's going to love me and I'm going to stand on stage and everybody's going to look at me and they're going to listen to what I have to say. It's going to be awesome. A lot of people step into what they think is a statement of obedience because they think it's just going to be an outward, easy blessing for them. And then they realize, okay, time out, obeying God's call will cost you. We've heard evangelistic sermons so much about how salvation is a free gift, and God doesn't, you know, it's not about works, and all that's all very true, but I want to be really clear that, that coming to faith in Christ is a complete and total 100% gift from God. It's not about your goodness or not about your obedience, but... Sanctification, like growing in Christ and becoming more like Him and seeing Him do things through your life, it is very much about the choices you make and the willingness you have to sacrifice and the places that you put yourself in and the relationships that you are willing to develop and grow with. And it will cost you. It will. But just like Mary comes to at the end of her song, she makes very clear... It's worth the cost. It's worth the cost. Now in the song, she measures it by how her life becomes a blessing to everybody else. Get this. It's been 2,000 years. And we are talking about the choices made by a teenage peasant girl whose last name we don't know. You think God can take the sacrifices of an individual and make it influential to the masses? Not only that, we're one of hundreds of thousands of churches that are having the same conversation about the same woman and the same choices 2,000 years later. God can take the obedience of one and do amazing things with it. It will cost you, but it is worth the cost. It is absolutely worth the cost. So my challenge and encouragement to you today is, count the cost. Lord, I want to be obedient to you. I want to respond to your calling in my life. I want to do what you've told me to do. I know it's going to cost me. I know it will be a challenge. But I trust that you're with me. You're ahead of me. You're behind me. You're around me. You're in me. And so if there is a cost to me, I will take that cost. And I will move forward because of you. And as Mary recognized, you will do great things. That is for my joy and for your glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we celebrate you. I ask that you would help us as a people to really deal with what it looks like to sacrifice, what it looks like to obey. Help us, Lord, to move that into our own walk with you so that we can not only recognize your voice when you're calling us, see the steps you want us to take, and then be willing to take them. It's amazing what you do with the obedience of one person. Lord, and we see in the other parts of scripture that when you begin to put those that one person with two people and five people and 20 people and 100 people, all of a sudden, Lord, just as our mission statement says, you are renewing communities through the obedience of individuals. We believe that's a calling for us as a church, Lord. Start with us as individuals, we know you will, and then move us together as we grow closer together, as we love one another, as we obey you together, as we help each other, Lord, through those sacrifices so that nobody is really having to make those sacrifices alone, just like in this story, where Elizabeth is making sacrifices, but Mary is with her. And Mary is making sacrifices, but Elizabeth is with her. And later on in life, Lord, we see how you take those two sons and you put them together. As John the Baptist is the one to baptize Jesus. As John the Baptist is the one to announce Jesus' arrival as the Messiah. As John the Baptist is the one to be arrested and ultimately beheaded in defense of who Jesus is. We do this together. Lord, take us in this moment and in this time, and help us focus our attention on You. Thank You for this Advent season, that reminds us so beautifully of all that You are doing in our lives. In Your name, we pray. Amen. Would You stand?